And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. We're coming in toward the end of the year. This is our podcast after Worldcon and before World Fantasy, where mm. I will be heading in about a week. And, Jeez, uh, I'm jealous. I'm uh, so jealous. Yeah, you should be, actually. I to- looking at who, everybody who's going, I totally made the wrong call. I shouldn't have gone to Chicago, although I enjoyed myself and it was good. I should have gone to New Orleans. Well, you can always go to Kansas City next year, you know. <laughs> I don't know. It might be overrated. Who knows? Uh, well, but, um, yeah. I, mean, I envy you, and I yeah, I wish I was there. So. Well, I, it, it, it should be a lot of fun. I mean, it usually is, and it is in New Orleans. I've only been there. Most of the people I'm meeting there have not been there at all. So mm. I, well, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know and maybe even record one or two short things while we're there. We'll see. That'll be fun. Anyway, so how have you been? Uh, doing well. I've been keeping up with reading. I've been trying to uh, write, write, write this column, which you guys insist comes out every month. I don't know why I can't <laughs> do one. Novelists get away with one or two a year if they're prolific. And every month, I mean, I, I see these people on Facebook or on, on Twitter, uh, which is now Muskville, I guess, uh, saying, I've sold my second story this year. They don't realize what a miserable life it is to have to turn in a 4,000-word column every four weeks. The thing is, though, Gary, I understand the truth. And you know what the truth is? Mm-hmm. If you're not doing it every month and say, oh, I can do it every second month, and I can do it every third month, and I can do it every – like tw- twice a year is surely going to be enough. Mm-hmm. And then it's done. That's what, what would happen, I'm sure. And then eventually – Because it's you're kind of doing... a little bit of – it's work. Right. It is. It, it is work. But, but it is fun because I get to read a lot of interesting stuff. And that kind of brings us to what's going on these days. I mean, um, there's uh, a, a lot of discussion going on, on, I guess, on Facebook mostly. And I think you started some of it, asking what people mm. think a space opera is. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, largely because I'm working on two different book projects that, that mm-hmm. uh, circle this very space. You know, what is space opera? Where did it start? Uh, how did it change? What has it become? So that's very much been on my mind. Is it important? I mean, is the term really anything meaningful at all at this point? Is it important? It's, the answer is the, you know, the classic definitional response, yes and no. Mm-hmm. It is utterly unimportant to a reader who wants to read a book and enjoy it. It's almost completely unimportant to many, many people. However, it is important both as a sales and marketing term, and it is of value and use to a scholar of the field and purely to a scholar of the field to attempt to kind of look at how things have changed and evolved over time, if that's what you're interested in. Because, you know, there are a bunch of mm-hmm. you know, you know, terms that we use in the field, all of which are vague, contradictory, and have had multiple forces pulling at them and changing them over time. Because there's no neat taxonomy or clade of terms. There's no set of definitions we all follow. And so then it's like, well, what has happened with that? Well, one of the things that uh, occurs to me, I think you're absolutely right, that the kind of consensus his, uh, consensus history of science fiction primarily in the United States or primarily in the pulp magazine is that space opera was a period of time that basically dominated the pulps in the 30s before John W. Campbell. Came. That's vastly oversimplified, but you can trace the etymology of it. I did this dictionary years ago, and I went back and figured out um, – that the, the original term was horse opera, and it was apparently coined by yes. a silent film star named William S. Hart, who was one of the great silent film cowboys. And in the late mm. 20s, when cowboy 
uh, sound movies began to, some of them were singing cowboy movies. And so in his utter contempt for the singing cowboys, he called them horse operas. So at least mm -hmm. opera makes some sense there. There was some singing in those Back movies. Then? then, of course, later in the 30s, it gets applied to uh, radio dramas. Um, and the soap is, everybody knows the soap comes from these sponsors, which were soap companies. Sure, sure. But I remember reading early uh, reviews. I went, I did a lot of digging in this for some reason back then, probably because I had time. Um, the opera became a different thing. In, in, in terms of TV and radio soap operas, it referred to vast, overstated operatic emotions. In other words, the emotions mm -hmm. of these programs were clearly excessive and theatrical and demonstrative and, and so on. Hmm. And then Wilson- A bit like the telenovelist, yeah. Exactly. So, so, so you've got, back in the Westerns, you've got some rationale for the word opera. And in the TV and, and, and radio serials, you have some uh, obvious justification for soap. Opera takes on a different meaning. And then Wilson Tucker, of course, famously comes along in 1941 and uses uh, space opera, probably modeling it on soap opera, in a very derogatory sense, the hackneyed, grinding space, spaceship yarn. So he in, clearly intended it. Um, Mm. be a derogatory thing. Now, historically, it's probably important that he made this statement in 1941, like the third or fourth year into the Campbell era, when the space opera kind of thing yeah. was being relegated to startling stories and other second market magazines. Sure. And, and into the whole existence of space opera itself. I mean, if you look back, I mean, uh, Alexei uh, Panshin in The World Beyond the Hill, mm -hmm. I think tagged A. Van Vogt's Black Destroyer as the first work of space opera which is like 1937 or so. Yeah, which I think is completely wrong, but that's another... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, 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 the Doc Smith stories, the Edmund Hamilton stories, the, the, the Doc Smith stories date back to the 20s. Even. Um, sure, but none of those were seen as space opera at the time no, they weren't. until a long time after. Well, okay, because so I mean, somebody deliberately setting out to write in this tradition which Tucker had identified, but which everybody knew about. Van Vogt may very, very well may have been one of them. Um, no, I mean, look, I was reading uh, David Hartwell, who had a, a, you know, a penchant for attempting to put together big definitive anthologies mm -hmm. and retrospective frame things. In 2006, did uh, a book called The Space Opera Renaissance. Yes. And it's probably a little bit less kind of... Um, managed than some of the other books he did. And the intro introduction to that, what he says is, and I think he's right, that for the first 20, 30 years of the use of the term space opera, all it meant was bad science fiction. There was nothing really much more refined to it than that. Hmm. And if you look at the reviews of the time, if you read what he says, if you look at the reviews that are appearing in fanzines and then in magazines and the way people are uh, looking at it, it's just simply the bad old stuff. I think and that's then what happens. Okay, go ahead. No, but then apparently what happens is in the 60s, it begins to change. And that's when they start referring to things like uh, Doc Smith as space opera. And you begin to evolve into the, what would Gardner, this is what I would refer to as the, as the good old stuff. Uh -huh. It's that thing you look back fondly on that's kind of, uh, you know, sort of seen as something that's of you know, nostalgic value. And it does begin to get framed into that space kind of story like that. Yeah, well, I think uh, there are two uses. I mean, one... Uh, what 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 David Hartwell said was correct in terms of the way um, I hate to use the term outsiders in, the, in terms of the way the general press or the general reviewers or the mainstream would talk about space opera. They could mean any bad science fiction. I don't think any science fiction reader ever would have used the term that way because space becomes an operative term. There were lots and lots of really bad 
nuclear holocaust novels in the 40s, none of which had anything to do with space at all. Uh, So you can't just use space opera for any bad science fiction. It has to involve space. Somebody has to leave the planet. Um, (laughs) Well, see, that's interesting, because then you get into this whole idea of, I mean, the defining it, which we might talk about in a second, but you get this thing like, well, you know, do, how, does the, what it covers change, you know, change this term, right? And I mean, the way Hartwell puts it, and it sounds convincing, is around the time of Star Wars, the Del Reyes started investing money in promoting you know, space-based fiction as space opera oh, yeah. as a marketing tool. So the marketing tool definition of, of space opera begins to come into play, impacting the definition itself over time, because you've got this thing where it's like the good old stuff as it goes to space-based fiction. And then you segue into the whole thing in the 80s in the UK with radical space, radical right. hard SF and the new space opera and so on. With Paul McCauley and, 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 you know, and Baxter, and, yeah, Baxter yeah, yeah. and that sort of thing. And I think it's true. It's interesting, though, that that is a usage that comes mostly from the UK. I mean, that, that renaissance you're talking about, which I know people argue this, but there was a, a claim. There were claims back in the 80s made, I think, in print, if, not, if I'm not mistaken, in Interzone by Paul McCauley saying the Brits are doing the new space opera. It's our thing. And hmm. they've continuously been doing that for decades now. And it seems to me to ebb and flow in the United States. But I, but I think one of the reasons they can adapt the term, or adopt the term rather, uh, without being too self-conscious is that it was never part of the tradition that uh, they grew up with other than reading American science fiction. Uh, nobody yeah, nobody, I mean, in, in nobody would have called Olaf Stapledon a space opera. No, no. I mean, much in the same sense, if you like, in the way that non-English speaking science fiction that comes from places like... Uh, Russia or China tends to be fascinated with that period of science fiction, mm-hmm. but it's updated. And so they have those kind of elements in what they're doing, that that, that fascination with Clark and Asimov that maybe has passed in modern American science fiction, you know, or North right. American science fiction. So, And also you know, I think the, 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 there's a failure in, the, in, in that historical period to when you lump everything from 19, let's say 1926 to 1940 together, those galactic things, um, you're 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 failing to make a distinction that there was good and bad space opera even back then. Sure. I mean, sure. Edmund Hamilton was a better space opera writer than than Doc Smith. Doc Smith may have had sure. a lot of fun, but he was, and, and his, his imagination was vast. But Hamilton, possibly later in his career, because of the influence of being married to Lee Brackett, was more ambitious and was writing more character-based stuff. Um, well, I guess this is what begins to circle to the question or move to the question of what space opera actually is, because we're talking about it in time, and we've talked about a little bit about the evolution of definitions. Mm-hmm. So we do need to come to what it is, and Doc Smith's important because he frames that the response, I think, a little bit, or his work does. But I would say there is a change, several changes in the definition, which are worth thinking about for a second, because somewhere along the line, somebody started to fold other things into space opera and see them as space opera. And the most notable fold in, if you like, is the planetary romance. Right. At some point, the planetary romance gets you know, folded into the marketing and packaging or whatever it is. And suddenly, I mean, like, oh, I think it was maybe five, six years ago, I was floored when someone told me with a straight face that June was a space opera. And well, like, June's not a space opera. June's not a space opera. This is, there's a brief conversation, uh, which I just now have not thought of for the first, first time in years conversation I had with Doris Lessing, of all people, who was not at all snobbish about science fiction, but she continually referred to it, to her own stuff, um, as space fiction. She didn't use the term mm-hmm. science fiction. She knew Brian Aldiss. She knew she'd been a guest of honor at, the, at a Worldcon. And, so. and I asked her why she called it space fiction, and she said that 
she thought it just referred to any fiction that took place anywhere in outer space, anywhere off the planet. And, <laughs> and, and my thought at the time was, that's kind of naive and charming, but it makes a certain kind of sense. It, it, it might explain why people lump space opera with anything that takes place off the earth. Um, well, well, I mean, you, you certainly can't, well, you can certainly see where the way she titled her books, I mean, Cannabis and Ar Argos Archives and all these kind of things, yeah. are very space opera sounding titles. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this, rather than going for the straight definition, if you what are the characteristics to you that make up a space opera? I think it involves more than, well, I'm getting away from the kind of classic emotional definition. I, I don't think the science fiction space opera ever had the large operatic emotional gestures that, uh, that people criticized in the soap operas. And by and large, science fiction didn't have a lot of singing in it. So what characterizes a space opera for me? There has to be, in my mind, more than one planet involved, and there has to be some kind of travel, and there has to be some kind of economic system that probably involves more than one. Back in 1974, right, mm -hmm. uh, Brian Aldous edited one of the definitional anthologies right. of space opera called, interesting enough, Space Opera. I think it's out of print these. And in the introduction, he referred, said things like, you know, stars must flow past the ports like wine kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But here's my framing definition. First, it must take place primarily in space. That's the first thing. It's not primarily on planets. It can be on space stations, it can mm. be on spaceships, whatever else, but it's primarily in space. Second, the galaxy must be heavily populated. Really? You cannot have a space opera in an unpopulated galaxy. That's that's hard science fiction. Wow. Uh, I mean, maybe someone will shout it in, 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 at their, <clears throat> uh, you know, their podcasting devices right now and say I'm wrong. But, I mean, the whole core of a space opera, by and large, is going out and encountering other things. When... John, John Scalzi comes along in 2006, I guess it was, something like that, uh, five, 2005, with his Old Man's War, which mm -hmm. is a classic retro space opera. I mean, the first thing you get is character leaves Earth and encounters a, a, a bazaar of alien intelligences and life, and you know, the galaxy is a rich, bustling place, because if, there's no, if, if that's not out there, there's nowhere for the space opera to happen. Mm -hmm. right? So, so the galaxy is heavily populated, and it's on a, a, a an enormous. The, the background, at least, is on enormous scale. You must have galaxies and universes and all that sort of thing. You know, um, I, I unashamedly stole um, various bits and pieces from Aldous's book because you know it's like it goes precipices of light that went up went up you know, up forever kind of thing. That's the kind of space operatic scale you're talking about you know when i started talking about it online people came uh -huh. back saying well no 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 that's not what it is it's all about heightened emotion and romance and whatever else now i would say that that's not, a not really true i don't agree with it second of all if it is it's in, it's true now not for what space opera has been up until 10 years ago well i think one of the things that uh, is is kind of missing from the historical record is what happened after uh, the space opera period back in the 30s and 40s and uh, the kind of new space opera in the 40s and 50s, because in between, you had a lot of writers whose work uh, would qualify as space opera and usually isn't thought of. For example, uh, one of the earliest ones that would fit your definition is Arthur Clarke's The City and the Stars, which most mm -hmm. people remember as taking place mostly on Earth, and there's this last city on Earth that discovers... But actually, when the two people get together, they're out looking at the mad mind and they're flying all over the universe and they're, 
the, the second half of the book is pure space opera and your mm -hmm. As far as the heightened emotions or heightened sensitivity or more complicated themes, one of the things that happened, I would say, in the field <clears throat> between that period and, and let's say the Scalzi period or the Macaulay period, is you had a lot of writers and Cherry and uh, Lois Bujold and any mm -hmm. number of other writers were introducing, I'd say, more complicated characters into space opera and still writing within that tradition. So there is some heightened emotion that happened. Andre Norton, for that matter, uh, going back mm -hmm. to the 1950s. It's, it's, not, it's not operatic emotion. It's not uh, Wagnerian. Uh, but there's certainly uh, less clinical writing once you get um, writers like Bujold and Cherry. Look, I mean, to the extent that space opera is synonymous actually with space adventure, which to some extent it is, the space adventure story has always been from certainly from the beginning of the marketing category that is science fiction uh, in the early 20th century in the United States, up till now, the core of the field. Mm. You know, when Gardner does what I talk, talked about core science fiction, to some degree what he's talking about is, or was talking about is, adventure science fiction uh, and, you know, that, or space adventures. And so space adventure to some degree is the, the core thing. Now, there are, there are space adventures that aren't space opera, all space operas are space adventures. I would tend to agree with that in that there are technical space There are problem-solving in space stories. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. Asteroid mining stories, the kind of classic uh, cold equations thing. How do we... And, and, and that's... that. You're right. That's a respectable kind of uh, puzzle story that doesn't involve the scale. Yeah. Your definition so, insists on large, really, really large scale, right? In the background, yes, at least. The, the, the foreground of the story may not be heightened and super operatic but the background itself the space opera background which is a key part of what a space opera is i think right is populated galaxy in space large scale i mean some of this originates back with you know uh, the lensman series you know yeah. doc smith and Scarlet Spike, where you have your galaxies smashing together and all this kind of thing now to some degree that sort of slightly lurid approach to it uh, and I know that Smith himself didn't write in a particularly lurid manner, but it, the descriptions sound lurid. Hmm. Um, falls over towards a particular kind of space adventure story, which is maybe mostly evidenced these days in the Bane kind of books that are published. Um, and it's interesting how that how that in itself has changed and how the market views Bane type books. I mean, Robert Heinlein now is primarily published over by Bane, I believe, or at least mm -hmm. most recently published by Bane. And there are books that would not have been tagged as being, I mean, Bane at the beginning was space adventure, military science fiction, and then the equivalent kind of other fantasy end of space. And that's now encompassed things which wouldn't it would not have encompassed back in the day. Anyway, circling back to description, if not definition. Okay, let's, let's, what I'm trying to do is go ahead and finish. Sorry, no, finish your I was gonna finish your thought and then I'll I'll attack you. All I was gonna say was what I'm attempting to do is not to define space mm -hmm. opera, but to describe it. What are the elements that you that you would need to see for it to become space opera? And that's why I say scale, off-Earth, populated galaxy. I think those things are all key to start off with. So would you argue that you can't have a space opera that's set entirely within the solar system, like, say, Paul Macaulay's Quiet War novels? I've been thinking about that, right? And I am unsure is the, is the true answer, because if you read, I mean, the, the greatest, yeah, the greatest intrasolar system, or, yeah, intrasolar system series of the past decade and a half is The Expanse. Yeah. Um, and one of the great, you know, sort of intrasolar system novels of that period would be 2312, the Stan Robinson book. Right. Now, 
as I understand, the first six books of The Expanse are primarily set in the solar system, and they're very much akin to a kind of space adventure that could have grown out of the books that Alan Steele was writing mm -hmm. back in the early 80s, uh, and that had predecessors you know, that, that can be traced back, that kind of working class science fiction. And that, I don't think, is quite space opera. When it leaves the solar system, which it does, it becomes more space operatic. But frequently, and if you look at Frequently, these novels, like Paul McCauley's novels, will imply that there may be something else out there. They just don't sure. move out into the galaxy. Sure. And if you look at 2312, you could never call it a space opera, I don't no. think. It doesn't have that sort of tone. And yet, it, the actual background to it is not that alien to the kind of background that you see in place in The Expanse. Populated solar system, people moving around freely. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are you know, um, colonies and cities and whatever else around Jupiter and da, 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 all this kind of thing. Um, that, so, so that sort of populated solar system is not immediately equatable. It's the kind of story you tell with it as well. Well, that suggests that space opera becomes part of what, uh, I think Walheim came up with the term consensus history of science fiction. Certainly didn't come up with the idea, but I know he used the term, which implies this kind of consensus future history. You know, we, we, we go to the moon, we colonize the moon, we go to Mars, we colonize the outer planets, we go to another planet, and each phase of science fiction uh, is part of this, this, uh, this kind of consensus future. And what you're suggesting then is that the solar system novel simply takes place early on in this consensus, and that the space opera itself is basically, so it has to be, well, it doesn't have to be in the distant future, does it? No, it just has to. I mean, you you would have to, I guess, imagine an alternate timeline where we you know, because you, okay, it doesn't necessarily have to. The key is though, you have to be off Earth, right? So you need enough time to get off Earth, if that makes sense, you know. So it's like in, in tw you know, it's twenty twenty two, right? We're not off Earth. We're doing telepresence robots and all this kind of stuff. How do you get to the point where you're traveling faster than light to distant locations and encountering different people, different cultures, even if? And this is the thing. A heavily populated galaxy does not necessarily mean heavily populated with alien life, though it may. It can also mean heavily populated by you know, humanity that is spread to the stars. Well, this is another aspect of the space opera. I would argue that, no, it doesn't have to be in the distant future of humanity because one of the, by, by all aspects of your definition, uh, the, the, the two, first two novels in Charlie Jane Anders' young adult trilogy, Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak especially, fit all the definitions of space opera. They take place with a contemporary high school student finding out mm -hmm. she's really a princess of the, of the Galactic Empire, and she and a number of other uh, outsider young people get sort of uh, drafted into the Galactic Wars, and from there on, it's sure. part, there are parts of it that look absolutely like it could be in Ducks. So in other yeah. words... We can be abducted into space. There was a wonderful, was it Starman? Was that the old movie where a kid who's very good at video games gets abducted by yes, Robert Preston to become a, uh, a bat? They're remaking it. Yeah. Empire. Empire. So, yeah. Uh, so, so the space opera could be going on around us right now. Um, but, hang on, what was your point about the Charlie Jane Andrews? Because, I mean, from the titles of the, three titles of the books suggest they're space operas. Yes, Victories they are. Victories greater than death. Dreams bigger than heartbreak. Those, those are, are operatic. Those are deliberately operatic titles, and yet she deliberately uh, starts with with kind of it's 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 a very very common uh, premise for any kind of fan fantastic young adult fiction. An ordinary kid ends up in outer space, or in Narnia, mm -hmm. or down the rabbit hole, or sure. uh, in uh, saving her father in uh, in Madeline Lingle. So 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 that implies that space opera is a view of the universe. 
It's a view of this populated adventurous universe, which we don't have contact with yet, but it doesn't have to be set in our own future. Let me put a thought to you, which comes into this because I've, I confess, I've not read uh, the Unstoppable books and I know I should have. There are a lot of fun. Let me put it to you this. Is the difference over time in space opera that it has shifted from uh, primarily to be space adventures about the grand scale of the universe to space operas that are uh, space adventures that are about the grand scale of emotion. I think that's a good question because the other the other kind of classic book which I was going to drag into this conversation at some point was The Stars My Destination, which I've always thought mm-hmm. as the kind of original version of what you could call the literary space opera. It's very complex thematically, and the emotions in it, the central emotions in it are just raw vengeance. Um, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's deliberately cast in an operatic tone. It's, of course, it's based on, you know, a Dumas novel. Uh, so yeah. it's, kind of uh, it, 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 it does have that, that focus. And so I think, I think that one of the things that's begun to happen, and I think it's uh, related to the new space opera, to, a, to readers who demand more complex characters than readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the emotions have taken a much more central role Partly because we have, we know what the hardware is already. Let's face it. Once you, once you've got, uh, basically at this point, ninety years or so of galactic empires in science fiction, it's really hard to come up with much different. I mean, you can come up with weirdly different economic systems. You can come up with interesting mixtures of aliens and that sort of thing. But the one thing that you know you can do that a lot of science fiction failed to do for those 80 years is write actual characters and actual situations <laughs> having actual responses. Well, certainly it's interesting as well, because I mean, if you look at some of the kind of space operas or kind of books that, are, that either are obviously space operas to me or that are being tagged as space operas, books like uh, Kate Elliott's Unconquerable Sun, mm-hmm. uh, which is a retelling of, you know, the, a, a rough sort of retelling of Alexander the Great right. in space, or um, Neon Yang's The Genesis of Misery, which is a kind of retelling of Joan of Arc in space. Or if you look at um, the Gideon the Ninth series, you know, the Lock Tomb series from Tamsin Muir, mm-hmm. which are very much operatic in many ways on that kind of scale and whatever else. They, they are much more character and emotion focused. And this is flagged to me in a, in a Twitter exchange, Gary. Mm-hmm. Um, with Elliot de Baudard, who, who said, you know, that their, their view of it was that it was much more about the emotion and the characters and the relationships than it was about the background and everything else. And I think that's a fundamental shift. Well, it's a fundamental shift. Uh, it's, it's interesting that Elliot uh, would would put it that way because she more or less has her. I assume she's probably referring to her. I think you pronounce it the Zuya universe the far future universe, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. which which is which is brilliantly conceived and different but again by the time you're three or four um uh, stories into that you get the outline of what it is and it outside of the cultural differences it looks a lot like other galactic empires what makes the stories interest and in all the ones i've read is exactly what she says the reactions of the characters uh, to this backdrop are more important than the backdrop itself although the backdrops <laughs> All the novels you've mentioned, in Tamsin Muir, for example, like we could add Cameron Hurley to this, and other people who have space opera-like settings. Um, mm. the, the settings can be very dramatic and very yeah. uh, stark, but if you elaborate a setting like that and fail to do anything interesting with it in terms of character, you're not going to satisfy the modern reader. There was a discussion, I was at a, a, a conference just a couple of weeks ago, and there was a panel on hard science fiction, uh, 
I think, yep. on world building and hard science fiction. And nothing was said on the panel. Well, Joe said some interesting things. But it occurred to me that what goes on with world building in galactic empires is what goes on with planet building and hard science fiction. And the classic example of what went wrong with that was Hal Clement, who would spend enormous amounts of time and effort and math and do calculations and do orbital uh, surveys and this sort of thing and create this really interesting planet and populate it with really interesting aliens. And then the minute they open their mouths, the aliens are talking like stereotypes from a World War II combat movie. There's the kid from Brooklyn, you know, there's the farm kid. In other words, he could not write characters to save his life, uh, sure. even though he had sure. horrific, terrific backgrounds. And I think the lesson from there is you can have the most imaginative, terrific backgrounds. And I think this may be Elliot's point. And if you don't have realistic characters or believable characters realistically reacting to those environments, you've basically not made much progress since 1937. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, the way I, I took it, and you know, I mean, at some point we will talk to Elliot and allow them to yeah. you know, clarify what they, they think rather than just putting forward what, what we, we take from her tweet. But... Um, I actually think it's a, a thing where the, rela- the 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 character and the relationship is the only part of the story that matters, and that's the change. You know, I think if you go back to the space opera novels, even you know, sort of that start that start in the you know the fifties that you've talked about, mm-hmm. you know, the, maybe the Arthur Clarke, maybe whatever else, and then you bring it up through the seventies, you bring it up through the Centauri device, you bring it up through consider Flip Flebus, mm-hmm. through Revelation Space, whatever else. The characters matter, and the, the character resolution matters, but it's the Univ- the, the the resolution of the arc of the story of the the universe the galaxy itself that is the key that that scale of it and I think that is something that has genuinely changed uh, not completely because you certainly see someone like Adrian Tchaikovsky say as an example who's probably the exemplar right now of that style of space opera yeah um, ha- is still doing it on that kind of galaxy smashing scale. I think there's another change. I mean, the character may be the central change or the interest, uh, emphasis on character and to some extent on, on style. Um, but the other, uh, when you mention something like, when you mention people like Banks or especially M. John Harrison, there's another shift, which is that the huge galactic universe is maybe not something we can ever apprehend. In other words, you get to a certain sure. point and it just becomes a mystery. It becomes mystical. There, th- the universe does not yield to uh, to logical scientific conquest the way it did in the 30s and 40s. And, and one of the things in, in M. John Harrison's world is that uh, there are things, the Kefahuchi tract is a good example, is this area of space in which almost anything can happen. It's t- completely mm. unpredictable. And other people have picked up on that. There's some of that in Banks as well. So to some extent, the idea that the universe is tameable is no longer there. That's, yeah. uh, th- that's gone away, I think, with, with that consensus history that Walheim was talking about. No, we're not going to go out and, and conquer the galaxies, and we're never going to have a foundation kind of style. No, I mean, terrific, it, terrific fantasy. Yeah, and, and, and this is one of the arguments that I forgot who it was. Some famous quotation about, uh, about space opera was it's simply fantasy and science fiction dress. Science fiction I think the was our scientific understanding uh, of the universe tra- has changed all science fiction, but also, and it has definitely moved space opera from the, if you like, science fiction adventure column uh, of, of literature into the subgenre of epic fantasy, which is kind of what it is at novel length, particularly a subgenre of epic fantasy. I think, I, I think there's a distinction though, when you're talking about the kind of science fiction and M. John Harrison may not 
be the only example, but he's certainly a consistent example of it. Um, unlike much epic fantasy and unlike classic science fiction, the universe in this new space opera is not controllable. We're never going to fully master it. There isn't a, there, there isn't a book of, 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 of uh, runes somewhere that will teach us all the spells to master the, the universe. In, in other words, by and large, epic fantasy too often built without mystery. In other words, there are solutions to everything. And classic sure. science fiction is too often built without mysteries. The idea that if we just keep doing what we're doing, we will build galactic empires, even though, you know, for the last hundred years, we figured out that empires in general don't even work on Earth, let alone trying in that. So, so the true. idea of a controllable narrative environment uh, has kind of gone the way of, 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 of classic space opera. Maybe. I mean, the other big change I think that happens somewhere around the 60s, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, arguably there are waves of space opera that happen kicking off in the 30s, kicking off in the mid 60s, kicking off again in the late 80s, early 90s, mm -hmm. and then again in the 2010s. It's so about every generation. Yeah. After the 60s, they're self aware, right? Yeah. After the 60s, space opera exists and they're responding to space opera. M. John Harrison sits down in the, in the early 1970s, writes the Centauri device to kill space opera, right. to kill science fiction. That, that, that is how he described it. And it is a self-aware, knowing science uh, novel in a way that any book written in the 40s and 50s really couldn't be because they were still at the cliff face working out what it was. Right. Now you have a book where, you know, I'm not saying that every writer who you know sits down to write a space adventure is aware of the history of the field, but they'll have read somewhat around and they'll have read things influenced by other things. And so you get that awareness of what these other things are and you're either deliberately ignoring it or you're responding to it or you're trying something different. And I, that changes what you're doing. It, and it then, you've got the, then you've got all the other stuff influencing you as well because I mean, we've kind of touched on this because it's not our area of expertise, but there are other things that influence this space opera. I mean, the general mass media perception of space opera, which does not come from books, which mm -hmm. comes from television series and, right. and films, right? That is the most, the, the um, up until now, up until the last five years, mostly, an older kind of, of, of space opera, an older view of space opera yeah. being continued, an older view of space adventure fiction begins to change maybe with the remake of Battlestar Galactica and culminates in changing in the expanse. If expanse, that's right. Space adventure fiction, right? Um, and you can, and, yeah, you can see it in other things. Uh, you can see it in the evolution of the Star Trek franchises, actually in, in the Star Wars franchises now finally. So you know, that changes. But that, that view of space opera also then comes in because these young Young you know, young people first encountering space adventure stories mm -hmm. are encountering them on the screen, they're encountering them on the page, they're encountering them in games, they're encountering them in comics, all that kind of thing. And all that pushes for forward. And that's where you get a lot of the modern era kind of stuff being influenced by all of those things, not just simply this, you know, there isn't a simple anymore uh, cascade of evolution even. Right. Uh, from you know magazine science fiction in the early you twenties know, in in the United States because this is the other thing I mean the core of this actually is is not an American thing or a North American thing it's United States so you've got you know this, this thing that where it goes through the magazines and the pulps to, to, to books and, and so on that evolution is a tight subset of things I I think it's true and I think actually that influence probably even predates the Star Trek and Star Wars kinds of things mm. I was looking actually. At, at Worldcon, I don't know if you got a chance to see, but Stephen Korshak had part of his father's collection of science fiction art 
um, which yeah. goes all the way back to fantasy art and this sort of thing. But there were Frank R. Paul things. And one of the things that occurred to me uh, in looking at that is that, no, the people reading the pulp magazines didn't have the visuals of a Star Wars or a Star Trek, but they did have a lot of visual stimulation. And one of the reasons that art became so much a key part of and still is a part of uh, science fiction is because people grew up with those visual images. You wanted to look at an Ed Imswell or you wanted to see that uh, Chesley Bonestell uh, landscape and so forth. So there was always a visual aspect to it. And the idea of being able to realize that. And keep in mind that you know, obviously people like Lucas and Roddenberry, Roddenberry remembered their own childhood reading in science fiction. So all of this is, is informed by, by some awareness of at least the simple outlines of what space opera should look like. And you're right, then it, it, it becomes the dominant thing. And, and I, I suppose we ought to include comic books in that too, because there was sure, a huge sure. amount of outs, outer space imagery in, in those throughout the decade. Undeniably. You know, the other thing, and there was some disagreement when I raised this on social media as well, but I kind of stand by it. I mean, the primary template for the space opera and for, to some extent for the space adventure isn't horse operas or anything else. It's the golden age of sail maritime adventure. That's the primary model for it. Because if you think about what are the, the underpinning characteristics of a golden age of sail kind of thing, mm -hmm. small group of people setting out in a tight environment across a survivable but dangerous environment mm -hmm. where they can breathe the air, eat the food, where they can go and they can encounter other people, other cultures, other things, which may be strange and different or whatever else, but they're still actually interactable with. They're not so strange and alien that you couldn't interact with them on some level. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is quite often a military, but not always, a military element to it, you know, because there's that whole colonial thing that comes with it. And that's where piracy, you know, the, you know, part, you know pirates come into it. It's where all kinds of other bits and pieces. But that maritime history element from it underpins on. A, a huge amount of what space opera is. And I mean, and you see it say, in the modern era most clearly with something like, say, Walter John Williams's Praxis books, which are clearly modeled on that kind of thing. He's written right, maritime. And he has written maritime historical novels as well. And I think, again, this, this goes back to it, it probably is not just that there are a lot of science fiction writers who enjoy reading Patrick O'Brien novels. But it goes back to people like Heinlein growing up reading novels like Captain Marriott. In other words, that became part of the template that early science fiction writers had to, to do. I mean, all, all the, uh, sea, uh, the great sea novels, the, the sea wolves. As a matter of fact, when we were talking with Ray Naylor just a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, yeah. and he's got a ship named the Sea Wolf after the Jack London novel. So to some extent, yeah, that was the template that we had for fictions of exploration. And it's not surprising sure. that, uh, that that science fiction writers should pick up on them. For that matter, fantasy writers have picked up on them as well. Yeah. The Voyage of the Dawn um, Treader is another maritime adventure. Well, also, I mean, if you think about the titles of, well, science fiction, sure, but certainly space opera, space adventure, story, books and stories, how often do they have nautical, maritime, whatever kind of titles involved mm -hmm. in them, you know? Um, you know, it, it, you know. You know, I'd love to go down to the sea in ships kind of. You know, it, it, all this kind of stuff gets picked up and used again and again. I think it was uh, 
Greg Benford, right, in his mm-hmm. Galactic Centric series, which is not really space opera, it's something else, but, you know, it's that hard, hard SF version of that kind of thing, uh, has, you know, Across the Sea of Suns and In mm-hmm. the Oceans of Night, that kind, those kind of titles, because they evoke a certain feel which applies in this space. Well, I mean, again, that's that's kind of a almost liter- a literary archetype that goes back thousands of years. I mean, this is this is something that's mm. been part of our storytelling tradition since the Odyssey in the West, and probably since the the, the, the classic Chinese novel that involves a voyage whose title I'm blank. In other words, this is one of the archetypes of world literature, and it's not surprising that it should be part of of, of, of the science fiction and fantasy tradition. Mm. So I'm, I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure that's surprising necessarily. Um, there's another way of writing uh, space opera-like things that focus on the enclosed environment rather than the travel. In other words, there's there is the kind of a gigantic ship, the kind that uh, Robert Reed would write about, where the ship mm-hmm. is so large it becomes its own environment, and you're barely aware that it's traveling through space at all. But that doesn't fit into your definition of space opera. That's well. Again, no, I'm holding it. I okay, have not you don't have it a definition. No, during this conversation, I've never attempted to define it. I'm trying to lay out um, characteristics of it, right? And I, I was, I'll, I will stand by. If you're on one planet, you're not telling a space opera. No, I will agree that's with that. So that's June. June is ruled out, right? June, not a space opera. Space opera background. Space opera in other books in the series, maybe not in June. So I guess the question you can't be on one planet. Yeah. The qu- the question that that raises to me is uh, where and when did space opera become something to be addressed seriously rather than in fun? And by by that I mean you mentioned, for example, uh, M. John Harrison's The Centauri Device, which a lot of people have claimed as either being the end of old space opera or the beginning of new space opera. It certainly led to other uh, novels and certainly influenced people like Macaulay. Why would he write a novel to destroy space opera unless he was already taking space opera seriously. Before that, Harry Harrison had written Build the Galactic. Harry Harrison had written hilarious takedowns of space opera, which were actually very good parodies. But he wasn't talking about a parody. He was talking about, I've got to do something with this because it's threatening to my generation of writers. So we have to escape them. Well, I think, you know, there's always that sort of you know, push for renewal with, with angry young men or young young people coming in yeah. and uh, looking to do something you know new in this space and make it their own. I think that's a natural sort of arc, you know, arc of events. And I think in the mid-70s, because if you think about it, to some degree, the new wave in the 60s is a rejection of old school science fiction. We're going to talk, we're going to talk about people. We're going to talk about mm. emotions. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about this kind of thing, which we hadn't talked about in science fiction to some degree before, even though there are examples of it. Yeah. In the seventies, we're now very self-aware. We've got blockbuster science fiction for the first time. Right. I mean, yes, the Centauri device is seventy-four, but I mean, look at a book like *The Moat in God's Eye*, right? Yeah. Which is arguably maybe a little bit more military science fiction than space opera, but is a big fat summer blockbuster novel, even though by modern standards it ain't that big, but at the yeah. time it was. It was big at the um, time. And you're seeing science fiction writers hit the top of bestseller lists. Clark, Heinlein, Asimov mm-hmm. are you know, selling you know, huge n- numbers of books, quite often for galactic empires, uh, military space operas, adventures, this kind of stuff. And that kind of stuff, I think, a, a whole group of people responded, were working against. So the emotion to take this down and take it seriously comes around that time of the 70s when, um, you know, say, around the time of the Centauri device, segues into what becomes Interzone, 
right? Yeah. And that, that's a group of people. And their call for radical hard SF in the early 80s, which is going to completely reinvigorate it, which also is around the same time as you've got Bruce uh, I Sterling. I was going to say Sterling. Calling in, for, right. Because, I mean, my argument always was, right? And I have to think back to the actual supporting argument. But my argument very simplistically was this in the 80s, that the new space opera was a response by primarily British writers to Thatcherite Britain. And cyberpunk mm. was a response primarily by American writers to Reagan's America. I think the uh, I'm, I'm not sure the chronology works out with the new space opera. When the novels were coming out in the 80s, that's true. But I think there was another factor here. That was... When you mentioned Sterling and, and, and his sort of manifestos for cyberpunk, at the same time you had J.G. Ballard in England, or even earlier in the, in the 60s, earlier, arguing, yeah. arguing for what he called inner space. And he basic, his argument basically was the space opera, the outer space novel, the expanse into the universe is dead. That's not what we should be writing about. We should be writing about what's on our own minds, about, you know, about our own planet and this sort of thing, which is why he started his career with a series of disaster novels all set on earth i don't think there's are there any ballad yeah there are ballad stories that take place on other planets obviously there are a million mm-hmm. sure i mean uh, vermilion sands and right. stuff right right but by and large uh, there was a, a, a sense that uh science fiction needed to move beyond outer space and i know there was a reaction against that there was uh there was an argument it was it was a famous argument which i did not see and has not been recorded it was told to me by brian aldous between aldous and ballard in which Baldus was defending his old notion of the space opera as being the grand tradition. And Ballard is saying, that's in effect, that's why you'll never be literature. <laughs> Who cares? Who cares? I mean, yeah. uh, uh, and of course, then, of course, uh, Aldous, you could argue, spends most of the rest of his life trying to respond to that in print. And you could argue that, you mm-hmm. know, the Heliconia trilogy uh, is an attempt to show science fiction being serious. Yeah. And that parallels the book of the new sun and da 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 da. Um, but yeah, I mean, I will, I'll stand by, as I repeatedly do, that what I'm laying out in my statement are preconditions for space opera. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not off the, off, off world, if you're not dealing with a populated galaxy, if you're not dealing with galactic scale, you can't be a space opera. Now you may have primarily, uh, emotions at the foreground of it, and it may be primarily a romance or whatever. That possibly can be space opera. It may be primary. It may be military and conf- military conflict or whatever else, and that can be space opera. It can be other kind of things, but those preconditions, if they don't, if they're not met, they can't can't be a space opera. You've been dealing with writers as long as I have, and you know perfectly well that a statement like that is nothing but an invitation to a writer to show you I'm going to violate your preconditions and write a space opera. Which is great, and they should do that, but the one thing to remember about definitions is they're all retroactive, Gary. Of course. Well, all right. Let's back up. How, how <laughs> foregrounded does this galactic background have to be? Let's, well, actually, to some, I mean, okay, for me, to some degree, it has to be reasonably foregrounded. I mean, you have to sketch it out. You have to, and it has to make sense. You know, I mean, it, it's interesting. You, know, you, you cited uh, two people as writers of space opera, Lars Master Bujold and C.J. Cherry. Yeah. Both of whom write a range of work which meets some of these preconditions. Some they're of what they didn't say they space. were all space opera, but I'm... No, I know both. you didn't. One of the things, they're set in space, mm-hmm. they're in populated galaxies, um, they're told on a large scale. Mm-hmm. But even then, I mean, a portion of the 
uh, Miles Rokosigan series, for example, are hard science fiction novels that are about reproductive technology yeah, right. and other kind of things like that. Um, if you look at the Cherry novel, uh, you, if you look at the Harney sequence, for example, mm-hmm. space adventure, space, space operas in many ways. If you look at, say, the Foreigner book, they're all about politics right. and all this kind of thing not space opera. So, you know, it just depends. The, the preconditions can be there. They're not necessarily space operas. No preconditions, no space opera. That's fine. I mean, it's, it, just, it just strikes me that I'm, I'm thinking of what Arthur C. Clarke said about uh, if an elderly scientist says something is impossible, that almost certainly means it's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it sounds to me like you're setting, setting up a fence around what you want to think of as space opera and you can ex- who gets to make the decision as to what's excluded and what's included then for okay. example my question about foregrounding it has to be somewhat foregrounded if it's like three or four layers Let me deep in the try north. to answer your question i'll tell you who, who gets to answer that question whoever's attempting to frame it at the time right okay every answer is correct for me i've got two books that i'm going to edit a mm-hmm. retrospective uh, book on space opera covering the last decade or so, and an original book look, uh, you know, looking forward, right? I have to frame for those books oh, yeah. some kind of a response. So it's now my interpretation of what space opera is being used to frame, and I have to have an argument in there that I can make that people can look and say, well, whether or not I agree with you, whether I think what you're saying is a load of tosh, right? I can at least follow what you're doing and what you're saying and that kind of thing. So that's that. That's that academic slash editor anthologist mm. kind of thing, as opposed to the reader kind of thing, as opposed again to the writer kind of thing. And they're all different. I mean, because if you think about it, a, a publisher or a bookseller has one appro- reason for wanting to know about space opera, and that's to frame books in a way that they can right. sell them readily. Absolutely. And that's about it. Absolutely. And that, that's their sold. And that, they have their own definition and approach, which varies. A, a, a reader, depending on which reader it is, have, I mean, there, there's a clade of definitions and sub-definitions of space opera that apply to readers because it's what they see and what they argue and what they're looking for when they want this thing that is space opera, which combines some variation of the marketing definition of space space opera, the writer definition of space opera, the academic, all of which have changed over time. Let me Because there's no one clear answer to this. No, you're absolutely right. And to some extent, all you need to do is produce stories that will satisfy the reader's vague, their own understanding. No. I no? think from my books, what I have to do is I need to nail, I have to build a, concre- a, a solid picture, a convincing argument in, within the frame of a book. That's really what I have to do with these, particularly for the retrospective book, where I can choose any of the stories that were published that were space opera. And space opera these days is more a novelistic form than a short fiction form. Generally, even true, setting yeah. that aside, right? Um, you know, uh, I think it has to be consistent. It's not just a, oh, well, whatever. It's like, it's got to be consistent inside that book or when people look at it, they will go, that's, that's, that's rubbish. I mean, that's why, I mean, you, you know, Aldous' space opera from 74 holds up mm-hmm. because it is his consistent argument at that point in time when he's making an argument for what space opera is, what it was. Hartwell's you know, early 2000, mid 2000s, definition or a book is the same kind of thing when gardner and i did the two new space opera books right mm. in 07 and 09 they're an attempt to frame a, a both a recent past and a forthcoming future kind of definition mm-hmm. of it but i mean there is no concrete definition i mean this is the thing i mean i've I talked to people i talk to people at conventions about 
definitions about what's space opera, what's hard science fiction, and it's seen as being inclusionary or exclusionary mm. or whatever else. And I do understand why they see it that way. But I also think to some degree it's a misconstruction, you know, because it's suggesting that any of these definitions are absolute and that there are fences through which you cannot pass. When in fact what they are is they're vague moving descriptions that only are attempting to describe what a thing is, you know. They're characteristics. But- and okay, we're coming we're coming toward the end of our hour, but I want to introduce one other concept, which I think sure was certainly recognized by Aldous, and you've read these things much more recently than I have. But one thing that used to come up all the time in the discussion of space operas was the one characteristic people expected was fun. Is fun part of your set of characteristics for a space opera? No. It's not? No. So it can be, so so, so you can have absolutely grim, uh, existentially (laughs) despairing stories that are set in a space opera. Okay, to some extent, that is... Uh, in effect, you're acknowledging that M. John Harrison succeeded in what he did. The old space opera, the great galaxy-spanning fun things where we're going to go off, and the kind of thing which is still going on with the Charlie Jean Anders Unstoppable series, that that's only a sub-subset of space opera. Sure. I mean, the thing to always remember is that, uh, you know, the old space opera is dead. There it is over there, right? Well, it's dead. Uh, it's all still it, being written. It's, it's still being written, and, and partly it was... There's the sort of thing that, like I say, Harry Harrison did very well when he wrote those parodies. Uh, you, you, it's hard to parody, parody something which is already just fun, uh, which is one of the reasons that parodies, by and large, of Star Wars don't work. Mel Brooks thing, you know, is not one of his best movies because there's space already spaceballs. There's there's already a comedic sense in this sort of thing. Um, there and, can be, and and I think that. Uh, when you do get a successful parody of Star Trek, like uh, what's the one I'm thinking of with Sigourney Weaver and Alan? Oh, Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest. It's a lot of fun, but it's just purely affectionate fun. It's not real satire. Uh, so to some extent, space opera is its own parody. It always has been. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to sure. that extent, it's a kind of large-scale gesture. You, you don't take opera itself. If you go to the opera which I used to do once in a while with our friend Charles, you don't take opera seriously because of the stories. Uh, you're listening to the music and you're listening to grand sure. passions, but you don't, you, you can't not make, you cannot make fun of a Wagnerian opera. It's already doing it to itself. One of my, f- it's funny that somebody did do a space opera version of the ring of the Nibelung. Was that Stephen Donaldson who did a really terrible version of that? It could I think be. he did. I'm not you know, sure. the gap into conflict in those books. But oh, yeah. what I was going to say was, I mean, arguably one of the most space opera things I can think of in the modern era, if you will, is in one of Ian Banks' culture novels. He has a class, he has a, uh AI spaceship, AI mm. ship that whenever, whenever it enters a solar system, it has put together an artificial thing so that when it comes in, it comes in on a trail of like, uh, flaming skid marks and it actually skids around and makes skidding noises as it comes to a stop because that's how it thinks it should enter and it's the most fun thing to do and that is a very space opera thing it very very much is yeah uh, that's why i think that uh, the space opera doesn't have to be funny and i don't mean that at all but it is no. the idea is it strikes me as something that the writer is having some fun with it, it, the term space opera itself does not suggest to me grim existential horror stories well i mean yeah and no i mean look at revelation space well that's true uh 
And, you know, I mean, uh, Charlie's, Charles Strauss wrote a couple of books that sat in that space as well that were, you know, semi-grim kind of space operas, I mean, which were almost like Gormenghast in space yeah, kind of right. books, right? So, I mean, you absolutely t- totally can do it. Uh, whether how much people want to do it is a separate thing. But, you know, the one thing we know is that these, you know, sort of space opera will continue to evolve and it will never go away because, I mean, space adventure is the thing. I mean, and I, I think it's, I mean, to me, it's fascinating because one thing I've been saying on the podcast for the past three, four years or so mm. is that I don't believe we're going to get off Earth in any meaningful way. I don't believe we're going to build galactic empires. Mm. I don't think we're going to get out of the solar system uh, particularly. I, I, I think science is tending more and more to show us that that's the way the universe is. So these are fantasies. And, you know, space opera is a subset of fantasy. It's a subset of space adventure. Mm. You know, every space opera must be a space adventure. I'll make that statement. And if it's not, which, then, I mean, which I won't argue with in space adventure just to me sounds like fun, but it's beginning more and more uh, to, to quote whoever it was that I was quoting earlier that said, you, you, you've, you're just gradually erasing the line between uh, large scale science fiction, secondary world fantasy. Now, yeah. If we can magically go anywhere and in, encounter any kind of civilization, um, the only thing that makes it science fiction is that we're using some version of some kind of technology, which we sort of recognize how it works. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, this has already happened with time travel, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts, that you know, time travel doesn't belong to science fiction at all. Anybody can do time travel. Um, yeah. And now, now we're in a position where space opera basically is um, m- magic. Sure. And look, for, for what it's worth, and if you, know, if you want to sort of get, take your own sort of, you take the temperature of this right now and make up your own mind as readers because that's something we would encourage you to do. Mm. You could, for example, go out and try Shards of Earth by Adrian Tchaikovsky, which is one of his final architecture books. You could go out and try Maurice Broadus's Sweep of Stars. You could go out and try uh, Elliot de Bodard's The Red Scholar's Wake. I mean, uh, or any one of the uh, locked, well, start with Gideon the Ninth. Yeah. Any one of the locked term books. Uh, there's, a, there's a range of science fiction space adventures out there that will give readers their own frame for this. And, you know, Genesis of Misery, you know, the Neon Yang. Mm. There are all these books out there that you can try, as well as, you know, sort of, if you will, the older style of book. I mean, I I, I will note that it looks as though Walter John Williams has just brought the Praxis series to its conclusion with a sixth and seventh and final novel. So there's that. So there's there's, there's Mm. stuff out there. And, you know, if you go out and read it yourself and, you know, sort of go watch a Gal- you know, Guardians of the Galaxy movie because those are basically space operas yeah. um, or go watch, you know, Star Trek Discovery or something, you'll form your own view of it. And then you come back and you'll yell at us and tell us we're wrong, which we probably are. Which we probably are. And there's one thing that people will be reminding, of, uh, uh, reminding us of, and I think that's entirely valid for them to do that, is that when you talk about uh, the, the, the new novel from... Uh, Aliette de Bodard or Tamsin Muir or any number of the other uh, writers. A lot of these uh, stories use space opera templates, but the characters are characters who have been excluded from space opera in the past. In other words, returning to to a familiar kind of universe and populating it with BIPOC and LGBTQ people and and making them central to the narrative and adding that as a dimension of the narrative is a way of kind of 
claiming space opera for people who never had it offered to them back in the 30s. And, yeah. and to some extent, I mean, it, it, it helps redefine space opera. Sure. Because it and I think you see that a in, set of character relationships. I think you see that in books like, like I say, Maurice brought, brought us as Swim yeah. Stars. You see it in Nadia Korafor's Binti uh, mm-hmm. books. Uh, I think you see it in, oh, another one left in my tongue. Uh, there's just an, an array of, uh, oh, I know. Zigzag Claiborne's Afro Puffs of the Universe, oh, right, okay. or other tens of the Universe, and there's a couple of others, which are painting an alternate picture, or, or or a more expanded picture of what space opera and science fiction can be, and going and reading those books as well, right? Now. Right. In other words, read everything that you think might be anything like space opera, and if it's and if you enjoy it, then it's space opera. That sounds probably. fine. Well, I mean, okay. Hey, look. I mean, the, probably the thing, again, we should have said at the very beginning, because, though, honestly, if you've listened this long, I mean, first of all, sorry. We probably could have got to the point faster. Yeah. Um, it's that there's no clear definition. Everybody gets to write space opera. Everybody has a chance. And every ver- 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 you know, sort of variety or a variation on space opera is valid. You know, there are terrific books, terrific stories of in, that are of every different kind. No argument there. Probably we'd no. better stop while we're ahead. Are we ahead? I think. <laughs> well, <laughs> stop while we're not any further behind than we already are. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I will say sort of as not to overstretch this episode at all, but, you know, I've started looking quite seriously at recommended reading. Uh-huh. For for locus, I should probably clarify that. Uh, and sort of the first stay, you know, phase of that is to gather together lists of books that are worth paying attention to, and they're rough lists at this point, yeah. and they will expand and change because they are not yet ones that are a result of people go, of, of getting a full range of voices involved and whatever else. But I'm struck by the quality and the breadth of work coming from all kinds of different places at the moment where there are fine books of, you know, fine trilogies, series, standalone novels, first novels, anthologies, collections that are science fiction, that are space opera, that are fantasy, that are whatever, from all parts of uh, the world and from all, all parts of the community as well. And that's really uh, encouraging. I mean, probably the next book I'm going to read that's a space opera, because I'm currently reading one now, will be uh, Mer Lafferty's book. Uh, Station Eternity, which I read, sorry, which who I met, sorry, at Chicago mm. in Chicago for the first time, and which is um, looks really, really good. And the title certainly sounds like a space opera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually a, it's, it's it's actually from the description. This is fun, right? We can yeah. talk to Murr. I don't know. It's it's the first. It'll tell you everything you need to uh, know about this book. It's the first volume in the Mid Solar Mergers. Ah, so it's kind of a space opera, and it's kind of a Miss Marple story. That sounds like fun. Does sound like fun, doesn't it? Well, so that's that. that and, and and also, I mean, this is really critical. Something else we can talk about someday: the importance of cover art, titling, and packaging. There's at least one book out there in the world that I'm interested in reading that I can't bring myself to buy because it's too damn ugly. But the Mer Lafferty book looks great. Looks terrific. So, if if we were organized, we would have notes, and then we would put these in, in the notes, and it'd be links to all these books we've mentioned. And someone in the background right now, Gary, is going yes. Uh, when they listen to this podcast, I should have been. We we should have been making notes of what we were talking about as we went along, I suppose. But go back. But no, anyway, now we're genuinely rambling. Yeah, well, that's what people. But but they expect us to stop sooner or later. So about now, I we, yeah, we we, 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 now. we can continue this another time with an because certainly some of the guests we'll be having in the next few weeks or months will have something to say about this. I think you're right. 
Uh, but for now, I hope you have a fantastic time in New Orleans. I am deadly jealous. I wish I was there. We could have gone out. We could have gone to the Café de Monde. We could have had Café Olay and Beignet together and watched the world pass by. But it'll have to happen another year. It'll happen another year. Maybe next year in Kansas City. Who knows? Well, but, but without but the anyway, Café Olay and the Beignet. And, 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 until, until New Orleans is over, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.